Well, good morning, Freeway. Um, how are we all going today? Excellent. Well, you got me this morning, and as you heard, my name's Tim. Um, I'm part of the team that lead our youth program here at Freeway. And this morning, we are continuing on with our Genesis series, and specifically, how the Genesis story prepares us for and leads us to Jesus. So today we're going to jump into one of the greatest stories of the Bible, a favorite in Sunday schools everywhere. Probably one of, if not, the most famous of all Bible stories, the story of Noah and the great flood. And we are going to see what this story has to reveal to us today, apart from just a wonderful name to call your firstborn son, my eldest son's name. Okay, but I know what you're thinking. Tim, we haven't had the Bible reading yet. Don't worry, I know. The reason being, the Noah story covers four whole chapters in Genesis, six to nine. And we can't just cut out bits of the story. That wouldn't be honoring the biblical authors, would it? So because of time restraints, we're going to read through the whole flood account, Genesis six through nine, and just pause along the way to to discuss different points as they come up. So I invite you to grab your Bibles, open them up, or turn them on, and we'll read along together. We'll be reading from the ESV translation. So strap yourselves in, we have some ground to cover. But before we get started, just a quick recap of the story so far. So Genesis 1 opens with chaotic waters, darkness, and God's Ruach hovering over the water. Okay, what is Ruach? Well, remember, we are reading from the ESV translation, an English translation of Genesis, which was originally written in ancient Hebrew. And Ruach is the Hebrew word for spirit. But unlike our English word for spirit, Ruach has multiple meanings. It can also mean breath, or wind as well as spirit. Just tuck that info away for later. So chaotic waters and ruach. Then we get light and then we get an expanse in the middle of these waters or as some of our English translations have it, a vaulted dome. And this expanse, this space is called heaven in Genesis 1 verse 8. Then God causes dry land to appear out of the water, and he calls the dry land earth. So earth is created in heaven. Then God creates vegetation on the earth of all different types, all according to their kind. Then we get creation above the earth, the sun, moon, and stars, and they are to rule up there over the earth. They further bring God's order to the chaos bringing time and seasons. God then creates water swarmers, fish, and sky flyers, birds, all according to their kinds. We then get animals, all according to their kinds. Order and beauty is created out of chaos. Then last of all, God creates Adam, the Hebrew word for humanity. God then splits the Adam in half 
and creates Eve out of one of the halves, whose name means life. So here we have the first couple, human and life. But there's one thing that sets these humans apart from everything else in creation. They are made in the image and likeness of God. And like the sun, moon and stars, humans are also to rule. But not up there in the heavens. Humans are to rule down here on the earth and look after, cultivate and allow God's good creation to reach its full potential. Then in Genesis 2, we are told this dry land place called earth has separations or levels to it. We are told firstly of a place called Eden. And then within Eden, the garden. This is where the humans are placed. Then finally, within this garden, we have the middle, where there are two trees that get a specific mention. So here we have it. This is how the biblical authors thought of the structure and composition of heaven and earth. A very good place where heaven and earth were created in the ideal to overlap. A place of order and function within these chaotic waters that surround. It's like we're living in an inverted snow dome, as Tim Mackey of the Bible Project puts it, with the water on the outside instead of the inside. And this makes total sense, right? That's why if you dig a deep enough hole in the earth, you hit those waters below, yeah? Well done. But then, of course, as we heard last week in chapter three, things go horribly wrong. Humanity disobey God after getting duped by a talking snake. They see what is good or attractive in their own eyes and they reach out and take it for themselves, resulting in them getting kicked out of the garden, now unable to walk with God in the cool, breezy time of day. But wait, not all hope is lost. We get Genesis 3.15, one of, if not the most important verse in the Bible. A promise from God that although things have gone so horribly wrong, an offspring of the woman will come and destroy the snake, but in doing so will get bitten. This is called good plot tension. For the rest of the story of the Bible, we need to be looking for and expecting this snake crusher to appear. Okay, enough backstory and context. Let's get stuck into the flood story. Maybe we'll find this snake crusher. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of, who were of old, the men of renown. Okay, Freeway, here we go. Can you believe we're going to do this? What are the Nephilim? Welcome to a crazy debate which has raged in Jewish and Christian thinking for the past 3,000 years, where seemingly countless opinions or ideas have been put forward. 
Now, of these ideas, two main categories have risen to the top. The first one being the Nephilim are simply humans, possibly influenced by or working alongside some sort of fallen spiritual power. These humans are the celebrities or the heroes of ancient times, kings, rulers, mighty warriors in battle or the like, mighty men who have made a name for themselves. The other point of view is where things get really weird, but seems to be the direction the text is leaning. The sons of God, important to note, son or sons of, or in some cases, daughter or daughters of, is a Hebrew turn of phrase, which, which comes up multiple times in the Bible. A way of, sim of simply saying a member or members of that group. Remember, Jesus' favourite way to refer to himself is the son of man, meaning the human, and specifically the human ruling alongside God in Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7. So a son of God is a spiritual being, a little G God created by Yahweh, the capital G creator God, to work as part of his staff team in the spiritual realm sometimes referred to as the divine council or the divine assembly in Psalm 82.1. So remember in the Christmas story when the angels appear to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2 verse 13, a multitude of the heavenly army or the host of heaven show up worshipping God. So the sons of God make up part of this heavenly host. I told you things were going to get weird. Now, what does it say these sons of God do? They see these daughters of men, there's that Hebrew turn of phrase again, these human women, they see that they are attractive and they take them for themselves. Hmm, haven't we heard this all before? This is exactly what the humans did with the fruit on one of those trees in the middle of the garden. So now we have more spiritual beings in the heavenly realm and humans in the earthly realm in contact, in conflict, sorry, with God. Not crazy enough for you yet? Good. It's about to go up another notch on the crazy scale. After seeing these human women were attractive and taking them for themselves, the sons of God have some sort of sexual union with these women and they bear children to them. And although it doesn't say it explicitly, the way the passage is crafted seems to indicate the Nephilim are the resulting part human, part spiritual being offspring of this union. Like real-life Marvel characters of ancient times, so I'm told. I haven't seen any of the Marvel movies. These Nephilim then set out to sow chaos in God's good creation, spread depravity and corrupt the line of the woman. So there you go. That's another view on what these Nephilim could be. Now I know what you are thinking. Are you nuts? You seriously expect us to believe that spiritual beings impregnated human women and they gave birth to offspring that are part God and part human? 
you would have to be insane to believe such a thing. Hmm. Wait a minute. Aren't we here at Freeway, a community of people who gather together regularly and share life together because we believe 2,000 years ago this creator God came to earth, took the form of a human to deal with the destruction and chaos caused by this human and spiritual rebellion and offer us humans a path back to the garden, back to relationship with God. And not only that, don't we also believe that this God in human form will one day again return and completely renew and totally reunite heaven and earth again, as it was intended in Genesis 1? We of all people should not be dismissing of an idea just because it sounds weird. So I encourage you to do your own deep dive into the subject of the Nephilim. The biblical authors have put these characters in the story for a reason. Put in the time, do your own research, and come to your own conclusion on what these Nephilim are and how their inclusion enriches the story the biblical authors are communicating. And of course, these Nephilim show up as great adversaries to God's, pe God's chosen people, the Israelites, later in the story. After God frees his people out of Egypt and leads them to the land of Canaan, the spies go into the land to check it out. And we get this report in Numbers 13, verses 32 and 33. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. So these Nephilim are also giants, but of course Joshua and Caleb think with God on their side, they can take them out, and eventually, after a 40-year detour, they do. Okay, let's get back to the Noah story, Genesis 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man who I have created from the face of the land, man, animals and creeping things and birds from the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. 
Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. Okay, let's stop here. First of all, I thought this was supposed to be an English translation. What the heck is a cubit? A cubit is a unit of measurement, and scholars debate about these things, but the consensus is a cubit is about the length from your elbow to your fingertips, around about 45 centimetres. But why is the author giving us this information? They don't need to tell us anything, but we are getting these vague details on how to build an ark. I'm a carpenter. I build new residential houses for a living. And as I've said before, as Christians, we are called to live like Jesus. So I don't know what you're all doing. Anyway, to build a new house, I get pages and pages of detailed working drawings. If someone came to me and said, Tim, build me a house out of gopher wood, make it three stories high, this high, this wide and this long, put a door in it and a window, coat the roof with pitch and put some rooms inside. I'd be like, that's not enough information to build you a house. So why are we getting these details? Well, let's think about the story so far. What's with these three levels? Let's go back to our little sketch of creation. Hmm, we have these same three levels. Could the author be communicating with these details, the ark is a little floating Eden? Let's keep reading. Maybe we'll find out. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breadth of life under heaven. Everything that is in the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive." Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. I shall serve as food for you and for them. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your, all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. 
of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah, as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. Okay, let's stop here again. If we got the hunch that the ark is a little Eden from its specifications above, this is definitely confirmed with the language used in this section. The collection of the animals and birds, all according to their kinds. The exact terminology used to describe God's creation of the animals and birds from Genesis 1. Also, in this section and the previous one, we are told that Noah is blameless and righteous. So there's a good Christianese word. What does righteous mean? If we use righteous at all in our culture today, it's usually used as a negative. But in the Bible, righteous simply means in right relationship, usually with God. So the rest of the world has been corrupted, but Noah is in right relationship with God. And not only that, we are told Noah walked with God. This is what God showed up to do with Adam and Eve at the breezy, cool time of day, Genesis 3, verse 8. But as a result of their disobedience, they could no longer do this. Adam and Eve were off hiding in the bushes, trying to hide their bits behind fig leaves. But it's not only righteous Noah who bore the ark. Along with Noah and the animals and birds, Noah's wife and sons and their wives also go into the ark. So... What's their relationship with God? Are they in right relationship as well? Well, it doesn't say, does it? They could be, but they also could not be. Let's keep reading. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heaven were, heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life, the ruach of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. 
He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind, a ruach, blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed and the rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated and in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat and the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Okay, let's pause here again. So let's go back to our creation sketch. As a response to the destruction human and spiritual rebellion has caused to God's very good creation, God brings a judgment, or could it be a mercy, if every intention of the thoughts of humans was only evil continually, I think both judgment and mercy are in play here. In the decreation of the earth, those waters above and waters below again begin to collapse in on themselves, almost to the point of the opening scene from Genesis 1. Apart from this little space, where this little Eden is floating on these chaotic waters. But God steps in and brings what? A ruach, a wind moving over the chaos waters. A new in the beginning. We are starting again, a new creation. At the end of the 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with them. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. 
Okay, so notice the language used in this passage. This is truly new creation. These periods of seven days, the reappearance of vegetation first, then the birds, then the animals, creepers and swarmers, repeating the sequence and terminology used in Genesis 1. Then God's direction. Go, be fruitful and multiply on the earth. A direct quotation from Genesis 1 verse 22. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of a man for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I give as I gave you the green plants, I, gave, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it from, a, from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you... Be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth and God said this is the sign of the covenant covenant that I have made between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Okay, so Noah, his family, and all the animals come off the ark. New creation is complete. And what's the first thing we are told Noah does? He makes an animal sacrifice, a sacrifice to God. Now this is only the second sacrifice made in the Bible. The first was Abel's sacrifice, Adam and Eve's son. 
and that didn't end well. That ended in Abel's death. But if we read on in the Bible from here, we see a sacrifice can sometimes be made as a thank you to God. But most commonly, a whole burnt offering, which this is, is a gift from God, whereby humans have a process in which they can apologise for their failings and restore relationship with God. Now, why would Noah need to do this? He's an awesome guy. He's blameless and righteous. He is already in right, right relationship with God. They take walks together. In fact, we should have thought of this earlier. Could Noah be the defeater of evil? The snake crusher, which was promised back in Genesis 3.15? If only the story stopped here. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew that his youngest son had and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived three hundred and fifty years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and then he died. I know. I thought Noah was the guy, the promised snake-crushing seed of the woman. But here we get Noah's full narrative. And would you look at how it happens? Noah plants a garden. Great start. A specific type of garden, a vineyard. But then he looks upon its fruit or at least the juice that comes out of its fruit, it looks good and he takes and takes and takes. He takes too much and gets drunk and passes out in his tent, resulting in Noah ending up in a state of nakedness and vulnerability outside his garden. Come on. This is just a replay of the Adam and Eve story and how they failed. We've heard all this before. I guess we'll have to keep reading. The snake crusher must come up later in the story. So there we have it. The Noah story jammed into 30 minutes. It's an amazing story, huh? So that's all great, but what can we take away from this story? Well, there's the point that Noah stays in right relationship to God even though everyone and everything around him is not. He persists against the culture he is living in through the obedience to God, through his obedience to God. And that's how we are called to live and how we may feel 
living in our culture today. Sure, all that's in there, and that'll sure preach. Most of you have probably heard that sermon before. But I'm not so sure that's the main point the author of Genesis is trying to convey to their audience, us. Let's think of the story of Noah in light of the series we are going through here at Freeway. How does the story of Genesis and specifically Noah and the Great Flood prepare and lead us to Jesus? Well, let's walk through it. If we take the supernatural view of the Nephilim, we already have a category right here at the start of Genesis that when supernatural and humanity combine, truly fantastical things can occur. We see that God can work through just one righteous man to bring about salvation for not just himself, but those who choose to align themselves alongside this righteous one and identify themselves as part of his family. We also see that God can work through the obedience of one righteous man to undo the decreation brought about by the rebellion of human and spiritual beings and bring about restoration and new creation to the earth. That a sacrifice made by one man in right relationship with God can be made on behalf of all of humanity. And if this is added to what we have already learned from the first sacrifice offered in the Bible, in chapter 4 of Genesis, the sacrifice given may result in the death of the righteous one. And finally, this creator God has such love for humanity and his good creation, he's willing to go to such incredible lengths to restore it. Wow. Would you look at that? This is why the first three quarters of our Bibles, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, is so critically important to understand and grasp the New Testament. And if we can persist through the passages which may seem weird or difficult to us, the Hebrew Bible gives us all the categories and information we need to discover what the New Testament is all about and what it is that Jesus actually does. Perhaps we need to spend more time meditating day and night on these difficult passages. This is why we are putting in the time studying Genesis here at Freeway. So hopefully we can continue on into, crisp, into the Christmas story later in the year with greater clarity than ever before. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank you for the story of the flood. We thank you for what it reveals to us about your character. And we thank you that your love for us is so great that you, through your son Jesus, made it possible for us humans to experience your presence. And Father, we look forward to the day when once again, Heaven and earth are totally reunited. Amen.